0: Please take them and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We are in at least the Himalayas of the book of Philippians. If not, we are on top of Mount Everest this morning as we get to these verses. This, this uh, message, these verses... Probably will be the greatest challenge for my own heart as i'm thinking through and and meditating this week on how to present These verses these verses are very clearly one thought verses 18 uh, B 18b the back half of verse 18 through verse 26 clearly one Thought clearly three main points that pop right out of the text and I want to preach those three main points this morning, but I don't think we'll be able to get through it all. I'm just warning you right now. I don't know if we're going to be able to get through all of them this morning. The reason being, the verses that we're going to cover this morning, specifically verse 21, is the theme not only of the book of Philippians. It is the main verse not only of the book of Philippians. It's the theme not only of the uh, Apostle Paul. It's the theme verse not only for his entire life, But really, for anybody who claims the name of Christ, this is our motivation, our reason for living. This is everything to us. This verse is everything to us. We must understand this verse. If we do not, I fear that when we get to the end of our life, we will be like the man that is chasing after an oasis in the middle of the desert. And he's so dehydrated, and he's so tired, and he's so exhausted that he sees a mirage of a vision he doesn't even see clearly and he runs after what he thinks is a beautiful oasis a beautiful pond and he he dives into the lake only to realize that it's just a bunch of sand and as he pulls the sand thinking it's water to his lips he realizes it's just sand hot dirty sand I fear for all of our souls that we will get to the end thinking that we have been pursuing a treasure and then when we finally hold on to it or hold on to what we think it is, it's going to disappear out of our hands. A perfect illustration of this is Robert Louis Stevenson's book, uh, famous well-known book, Treasure Island. In almost the end of the book, they've been seeking this treasure, trying to look for buried treasure. They've been looking at a map, they've been a bunch of, you know, pirate craziness going on, and we get to where they're about to come to the treasure, and it says this, it was not the size of the trees that led to the opening of the cave that now impressed my companions. This is uh, as they're entering into the cave that's going to be where the treasure is. It was this, it was the knowledge that 700,000 pounds in gold lay somewhere buried below its spreading shadow, The thought of the money as they drew nearer swallowed up their previous terrors. Their eyes burned in their heads. Their feet grew speedier and lighter. Their whole soul was found up in that fortune, that whole lifetime of extravagance and pleasure that lay waiting there for each of them. We were now at the margin of the thicket. Huzzah, mates all together, shouted Mary, and the foremost broke into a run. And suddenly, not ten yards further, we beheld them stop, a low cry arose. Long Silver doubled his pace, digging away with the foot of his crutch like one possessed. And next moment he and I had also come to a dead halt. Before us was a great excavation, not very recent for the sides had fallen in and grass had sprouted on the bottom. In this were the shaft of a pick broken into and the boards of several pack- packing cases strewn about. On one of the boards I saw, branded with a hot iron, the name Walrus, the name of Captain Flint's ship. This is where the treasure was supposed to be. We were where the treasure had been buried, but the cash had been found rifled and the 700,000 pounds were gone. You put yourself into their boots for a second and you couldn't possibly imagine the horror of a lifetime spent looking after that treasure, trying to find it, and then getting to the place where it's supposed to be, and it is gone. What it is, What is it that you and I are living for? Is it a treasure that in the end will prove to not even be real? John Piper says it this way, If there is only one life to live in this world, and if it is not to be wasted, Nothing can be more important to us than finding out exactly what God really meant in the Bible and living according to it. Ultimately, there are only two possibilities of why you are living your life, two motivations for the reason that you have to be living. You're either living for yourself or you're living for Christ. Those are the only two possibilities. You might say, "Well, I'm living for my family," but ultimately you can boil it on down to yourself or you can say, "I'm living for my family," but ultimately you can boil it down to serving Christ and living for Jesus. But there are only two possibilities of why you are living your life, and my fear, again, is that maybe, just maybe, we are chasing after a treasure that we have convinced ourselves exists, but we will find on the last day that we were dead wrong. In these verses this morning, Just after looking last week at Paul's perspective on how to view suffering rightly, biblically, now he's basically going to tell us how to view life biblically. How to live life with a biblical grid, a biblical lens. And he gives us three motivations for why he lives life. Three very simple, three very clear. They pop up out of the text at us. Three motivations for why Paul lives his life. If we were to say, Paul, Apostle Paul, speak to us this morning and tell us, Why do you have breath? Why do you live life? What are you doing on this planet? I think he would give us these three reasons in these verses ahead. So let's read these verses together, and then we'll see how far we get this morning. We'll pick it up at the end of verse 18. Speaking of his circumstances, that he doesn't really care what happens to him as long as the gospel is proclaimed, he says this, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. These verses just remind me of a kaleidoscope. Anybody have a kaleidoscope growing up? Just you look at it and you think the vision that you're seeing could not possibly get any better. And then you turn it just a sixteenth of a degree And it's better than the one before. And then just another, and you're just turning it and your mind is blown by the fact that you are seeing new vision, new color, new amazing patterns. That's what this verse, these verses are to me. It's a kaleidoscope. The more we look at it, the more we spin around, the more we realize there is so much depth in here. There is so much that catches our eye at first glance. And then as we look through it, there's even more there than when we first looked John Stott, I think, sums up these verses well and ultimately the Christian life perfectly by saying it this way. The person and work of Christ, as clearly seen in these verses, are the foundation rock upon which the Christian is built, which the believer is built. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left because Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. Christ is the center. All else around it is just merely circumference. And I think Paul does an amazing job, and I I hope that as we study these verses, you will see where the bullseye is, and you'll also see where the circumference is. And my prayer is that you will live your life in such a way that you can look back on it on your deathbed and say, I didn't waste a second of it. I didn't waste a second of it, because I knew what was the bullseye, and I knew what was the circumference, and I lived for Christ and Christ alone. So this morning, three reasons uh, that Paul has for living, and we'll start off with the first one in verses 18 through 20. The first reason clearly seen in these verses that Paul has for living, for breathing, for living his life, the first motivation is this, living to exalt Jesus Christ above all things living to exalt Jesus Christ above all things. If Paul were here, I think he would say that the ambition of his life was to exalt Jesus Christ above exalting anything else in this world. There are several things in this world that you and I exalt on a regular basis, and Paul would say, stop exalting those things and exalt only Jesus Christ. He starts in verse 18, at the end of verse 18, by saying, yes, and I will will rejoice. He previously said, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Present tense. In this, I'm rejoicing right now. He spoke earlier of a past tense. This is what has happened. The Praetorian guard has heard the gospel. They have believed the gospel. Even Nero's household is beginning to believe the gospel. That's what's happening in the past. In the present, I am rejoicing. And then he shifts his focus to the future tense. By saying, yes, and I will rejoice. And when he shifts to this future tense, he gives us a brand new stanza, if you will, in his um, letter. In his letter to the Philippians, he gives us a new section. and, And this whole future tense is seen throughout verses 18 through 26. So that's why this is really one paragraph, one statement. He says, yes, and, which in the Greek it's really um, declaring this as a new thought, a new segment. He, we could translate it, what is more this? Or let me tell you something else, that. So he says, I want to tell you something else. I want to pull back the veil over my heart and bleed on to you what I believe about life. He says this, I will rejoice, future tense, I promise, I pledge, I am confident that this is going to happen I choose to rejoice in the future. And here is a reason why I know I will be rejoicing in the future. Verse 19, because I know that this, his imprisonment in the cause of Christ, will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Reason number one that Paul has to rejoice in the midst of his circumstances is that he knows he will be delivered. He knows that he will be delivered. This sentence, this statement, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, write this down. This is a direct quote from Job chapter 13 verse 16. Direct quote from Job 13 verse 16. It's a direct quote from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Why would Paul be alluding to job 13 i I mean my bible doesn't even put this in all caps which would tell us it is a direct old testament quote why would he be alluding to the old testament why is he thinking about job in the middle of his circumstances in prison i'll tell you we don't have time to go to job i would encourage you on your own time to go there but job 13 contains one of job's speeches basically against his friends You remember his friends, and I'll put that term in quotes. His friends had told him, Job, you are suffering. You are under God's condemnation because you are hiding some secret sin. And because of your secret sin, that if only you would confess, you would find freedom and salvation. Because of your secret sin, you are suffering. That's the reason why you're suffering and going through these trials. In Job 13, Job speaks out and says, No, I'm standing uprightly before the Lord. There is no hidden secret sin. I am living above reproach. And therefore, I know without a shadow of a doubt that this is not suffering based upon my sin. This is something that God is doing. And I know, and this is where he says this quote, I know that all of this will turn out for my deliverance or salvation I know that no matter what happens, I will be saved. You think that I'm hiding sin and living as a pagan, but I promise you that whatever happens, I will turn out to be saved because I will be vindicated by God and God alone. You try to judge my heart. You're not judging it properly. I can't even judge my heart properly, but God will be my judge. And I know that whatever happens, God will save me because I'm living uprightly before him. That's what Paul is saying. I think he's thinking about Job as some people are saying about him oh he's suffering justly he's suffering justly because paul has been preaching a wrong gospel or paul has been doing something that's wrong or compromising the faith and paul says no 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 i know that my prison imprisonment is not because of that and i think he thinks back upon job and he thinks you know what job said this to his friends who got it wrong and i'll say it to you as well because maybe you're getting it wrong This will turn out for my salvation, for my deliverance. I will be saved through this. This isn't because of anything that I have done wrong. That word deliverance in the Greek is just the word salvation. Some of you might even have a footnote there for that verse. Uh, This will turn out for my salvation. Now, a lot of people think maybe this means ultimate salvation from hell to God. I don't think that that's what Paul is meaning here. Some people go the opposite side and say that Paul is just saying, I will be delivered from prison. And that could be possible, and I think it's definitely there in that word deliverance, but whatever that word means for us, we must understand that it must include the possibility of being delivered through life or through death, because he's going to end up talking about, I'm fine to die, in fact, I'd rather die because then I would be delivered to Christ through my death. Ultimately, all Paul is saying is, I know that this isn't the end. I I know this isn't where my life stops. I know this isn't where the gospel stops. If you turn to Romans chapter 14, I think you'll see Paul's heart on display here as well for the deliverance that will come, whether through life or through death. Romans chapter 14, verses 8 and 9 If we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord. So it doesn't really matter what happens in life or death because we are his. For to this end, verse 9, Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. So no matter what comes, I am his. No matter what comes, I am his. Paul says, I know that this is going to turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. The the provision of your prayers is going to bring about the deliverance that God would have for me. And I love how he says, through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. It's not that the spirit's going to supply everything that Paul needs. It's that the spirit himself is the supply of everything that Paul needs. He says, as long as I have the spirit, I have everything I need. As long as I have the spirit of Jesus Christ, I have everything I could possibly need. And then he hinges it on this statement in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, ultimately, my deliverance is sure because I know that God is in control of my life. I know that God is my Lord. And so whether we die, we are his, or whether we live, we are his. I know that you're praying for me and that your prayers will be used by God to deliver me. And I know that the spirit of Jesus Christ is all that I need. But the bottom line is, I know that wherever I am and whatever I do, I will exalt Jesus Christ. That's what I care most about doing. That is my earnest expectation. That is my hope to exalt Christ as I always do. I want to exalt Christ in everything. Show him to be better than anything in this world. So he starts in verse 20 by saying, this is according to my earnest expectation. This word is used only here and one other place in Romans 8 verse 19. Romans 8 verse 19, you know, uh, the section talks about the creation groaning, longing to be released from sin and the, the entrapment of the curse. And it says specifically that the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the son of God. The anxious longing of creation waits waits eagerly. That's the word here, earnest expectation. It's not just what I know, it's what I'm hoping for, it's what I'm longing for. I know this is going to happen, but it's not just a dead knowledge, it's something that I'm longing for. He says, earnest expectation and hope. I'm hoping, longing for it. Those two words are kind of in the Greek like our phrase, just, you know, sick and tired. It doesn't really mean that you are sick or tired, and maybe you are, but What it means is, you know the phrase just has a connotation of, I'm just done with this. Paul is saying, I have an earnest expectation and hope. And just like our phrase, sick and tired, he's putting those two things together. And he's saying, earnest expectation and hope, going hand in hand. I can't wait. I long for it. I cannot wait for this to come about. I have a certain anxious longing. And what is my longing? My longing is that I will not be put to shame in anything not be put to shame. Some of your translations might just say, I'm not ashamed of anything. We have a wrong concept uh, biblically of shame. Uh, our idea of shame is uh, you go to a, a school play, you know, with elementary school kids. I know this is going to happen with Chelsea one day, where you go to, the, go to the school play and some kid gets up there and forgets the lines Um, you know that that kid is totally embarrassed, but you know when you start to feel that nervousness for them and you're just thinking, oh, I hope you remember the poor lines. Please remember the lines because you're feeling bad for them. That's the typical idea of shame in our minds, but that's not the biblical understanding of shame or being ashamed. The biblical understanding of being ashamed is that you have no uh, vindication. You are proven to be wrong. You hoped in something that ultimately was wrong. That's what it means to be ashamed. That you placed your trust in something that ultimately let you down. You have been ashamed. Paul says, I know that I will not be ashamed. When I put my trust in Christ, come what may, I will not be ashamed. I will not be ashamed. Nobody can say to me on that last day, wow, you trusted in something that proved to be absolutely wrong and you wasted your life. says, I'm not going to be put to shame in anything I do, but instead, with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He will be exalted. Some of your translations might say he will be magnified. uh, Greek, uh, mega luno, to be shown to be great. And notice, you could put a note here in your Bible. My, My translation says, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body. Notice he doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, I will exalt Christ in what I do. That would be an active voice. I'm going to do the exalting. But instead, this is a passive voice. You could put that note in your margin. This is a passive voice. Christ will exalt himself in and through me. Christ has to do the exalting. I will do things, but Christ will ultimately, by his grace and power and strength, exalt himself through what I do. Exalt himself through what I do. So we have to ask the question, how do we exalt Christ? How do we how are we used by Christ to exalt himself? How is that done? How do we put ourselves in the path of exalting Jesus Christ? From this text, let me give you just a couple of reasons or a couple ways we can do that. Number one, by speaking up about Jesus Christ, by being outspoken, that phrase in all boldness or with all boldness. One of the ways that we exalt Jesus Christ or show him to be great or are used by Jesus himself to exalt himself is to speak up, open our mouth, share the gospel. Paul says, I'll have all boldness. I will have all boldness, whether it's in prison, whether it's before Felix, whether it's before Festus, I will open my mouth and preach the gospel and Christ will exalt himself in the proclamation of the gospel. We exalt Christ by speaking up about him. And and Jesus says that that's gonna happen. And Jesus says, it's a good thing when you do speak about him. And it's a bad thing when you don't. Matthew 10, verse 32, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my father. But whoever does not confess me before men, I will not confess him before my father. So Paul says, one of the ways that we can magnify God or be used by Christ to exalt himself, to show him to be great, is speak, proclaim the gospel, the greatness of our God through the great love that he has shown to us. The second way is by being consistent, not having hypocrisy, doing this constantly. This is where Paul says, Christ will even now as always, this isn't some hobby for me to do, this isn't some career, it's not like Paul does this because he's a pastor, but we don't have to do this. Every believer should make it their aim to exalt Jesus Christ in everything they do, whether by life or by death. Paul says I'm consistent whether it's now whether it's later. I always exalt Jesus Christ Come find me in the morning when the alarm clock has just gone off and I am exalting Jesus Christ Come find me while i'm eating my fruit loops and I am exalting Jesus Christ Come find me in prison chained to a roman guard and i'm exalting Jesus Christ. I'm never going to quit. I'm never going to give up I will exalt Jesus Christ So we exalt Christ by proclaiming the gospel, by speaking up about him. We exalt Jesus Christ by being consistent in how we do that and exalting him in every circumstance we are in. And thirdly, we exalt Jesus Christ by our circumstances, whatever they may be. By our circumstances, whatever they may be. He says, whether by life or by death. Whether by life or by death. I don't think that there's any middle ground. I don't think there's another option there. Whether I'm living or dying, or I don't know what the other option would be. There's no other option. You either are alive or you are dead. So Paul says, in everything I'm doing, whether I'm in prison, whatever it might be, in everything that I'm doing, I am exalting Jesus Christ. We have a little um, little placard that's in uh, our house as you walk in. Some of you probably saw it when you were over for a potluck when we had it in the summer right as you walk in the door on the left-hand side so that we can see it right before we leave, it says this. Some of you know the poem. Only one life, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for whom? For Christ shall last. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's why Paul says, I want to exalt Jesus Christ above all things. If you live to exalt Jesus Christ, then you know you will never be wasting your life. And if you exalt Jesus Christ, you're going to experience joy. He says, I'm going to rejoice. You'll have confidence. You won't be put to shame. You will ultimately be vindicated that your trust in Jesus Christ was the right thing to do. Do you and I exalt Jesus Christ, whether by life or by death? What are the circumstances God has placed you in whereby you can show God to be great? Paul says, I live with reason number one as a motivation to exalt Jesus Christ above all things secondly not only is exalting jesus christ above all things one of the motivations that paul has for living life but secondly and this is a bit long so i'll say it a couple times paul lives to embrace jesus christ as treasure better than life embrace jesus christ as treasure that's better than life and to see death as a means of treasuring him more to embrace as treasure that's better than life and to see death as a means of treasuring him even more. Life and death. In life, he will be my greatest treasure. In death, I will have gain because I will be able to treasure him even more. Paul says, I want to exalt Jesus Christ above all things and I also want to embrace him and him alone as my supreme treasure in life and see my death as a means of treasuring him more. This is verse 21 for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He starts off with that word for that's connecting it to the preceding verse, which I find amazing. This is what Paul is saying. He says, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether I live or I die. I know that Jesus Christ will be exalted in everything I do because Living is Christ and dying is gain. That's how he knows that he can do whatever he wants to do and Jesus will be exalted. If you have this mentality that Christ is your life and death is gain, then you know whatever you do will be done to exalt Jesus Christ. You wanna know what the will of God is and you wanna know how to exalt Jesus Christ in every decision that you are making? Have verse 21 as your life verse to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why that word for is there. We can't split it. We can't um, take it away from its uh, setting. Because if we do, we rob it of its true meaning. Paul says, if living is Christ for you and dying is gain for you, then Christ will always be exalted in everything that you do. I love this verse. Verse 21, I love it. Uh, Really, verses 21 through 24 is point number two, but we're probably only going to get through verse 21 here. I love this verse. Here it is. To live is Christ, to die is gain. We need to put a little four there with a sharpie. This verse makes no sense in the Greek. This verse kind of is a little bit of a fumbly verse in the English. Makes no sense in the Greek. There are no verbs. Literally, in the Greek, it reads this. For to me, Christ, and to die gain. That's what it means. No no, is, no stative verb that's equating the two on the sides, though that's what's implied. Christ is life. Death is gain. And Paul is kind of making a play on words with sound. He he basically says to live is Christos and to die is Kerdos. Death is gain for me. And life is nothing but Christ. He starts by saying to live is Christ or to live is Christ christ present tense we could say it this way living is christ life means christ this is what he lives for ask anybody around you ask yourself what is it that you're living for what are you living for why do you go to work why do you go to school why do you hang out with your family because you have to (laughs) why do you hang out with them on thanksgiving why do you do everything that you do I know it's so cliche, but Paul would say it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus? Wait, you're saying I can be stuck in traffic driving to work for Jesus? Is that even possible? (laughs) Paul says, what should the Christian, what should the believer be living for? Why is he taking his breath? He's doing so to treasure Christ, to treasure Christ. To put it into our own context If I were to say it this way, if I were to say really living, I love living life to hang out with Hannah. I love living life to hang out with Hannah. Really living is being able to be with Chelsea and play with her and roughhouse with her and just listen to her giggle and and laugh. That's really living. All of those things have, if we can be grammatical here for a little bit, they all have helping verbs. They all have helping gerunds. Really living is to love Hannah or to serve Hannah. Living for me is to be with Hannah. But Paul would say it this way if he would say it in our context. Really living is to Hannah. That's it. Really living is to no helping verb needed. It's Hannah. Or for Paul, he would say this. Really living for me to Christ. It's Jesus. Jesus is everything to him, Really living is to Jesus. Everything else is encapsulated in him. He says it another way in Colossians. Turn to Colossians. How do we make this be a perspective for us? How do we live this way with this paradigm that living is Jesus? How do I make every decision living for Jesus Christ? How do I do that? Colossians chapter 1, a very, very helpful verse that we need to have memorized just like we have memorized uh, Philippians one twenty one, we need to memorize Colossians 1.18. It says this, He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that's, this is speaking of Christ, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Paul could have said first place above everything, first place over everything. But Paul says, so that he will come to have first place in everything. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has no desire whatsoever to be number one on your list. Jesus Christ has no desire whatsoever to top off your list at number one. That's not enough for him. Jesus Christ has every desire to be your list in its entirety. So we don't have Jesus is one, family is two, church is three, kids are five. I don't know where you'd put them. (laughs) They're probably in family. Job is four. Something else is six. And you just keep going down. But God's first. Wrong. If Paul wanted to say that, he could have said that. First place over everything, first place beyond everything, above everything. But he says, I want Christ to have first place in everything. So Jesus is number one, number two, number four, number 368. Jesus is your list. Everything that you do, to put it just into a, a simple way, everything that you do in your entire life is done in reference to Jesus Christ. That's how we live in such a way that we could say, with Paul, to live is Christ. Everything that we do is done in reference to Jesus. We can't separate Jesus from any part of our lives. I think that's one of the greatest temptations that we have as we look at Christianity. We tend to think that it's just simply behavior modification, just a list of do's and don'ts. Though that does happen, though behavior modification does happen, it's a result of the goal. It isn't the goal. Behavior modification isn't the goal. The goal is Christ, and behavior modification happens as we treasure Christ. Things start changing in our lives, as we treasure Christ, but the issue isn't longing to be different or to stop doing or start doing. What we should be longing for is Jesus. Gordon Fee, in his commentary on Philippians, says it this way essentially, this sentence is the key to everything, to everything, both in this letter and to Paul's life as a whole. Martin Lloyd Jones says a fascinating sentence in regards to this verse. He says that it's, it's not enough for the Christian to live for God. Now that is just, the first time I read that, I just went, heresy, that's wrong, I'm never reading him again. But this is what he says. It's not enough for the Christian to live for God, because that's what a lot of people live for. You take a lot of religions, take Catholicism, take Judaism, they would all agree, I'm living for God. It's not enough just to say, I live for God. You must, like Paul, say, I live for Jesus Christ. I live for him as Savior, as only, the only way, the only truth, the only life. I live for him. I live for Christ. Another author said, I have one passion. It is Christ and Christ alone. So here's a litmus test. Can you say with Paul? To live is Christ. Everything that I do is in reference to him. Here's your test. When your mind is not forced to think about other things, like if you're in school and you're forced to think about math, um, God bless you as you do that. Um, That's a very challenging thing to do that I don't quite enjoy. Uh, I much prefer English. But if your mind is forced to think about that and you have to think about that, when your mind isn't forced to think about something, where does it go? What do you talk about? When you're not forced to speak about other things do you make decisions based on your commitment to jesus christ do you do things in your life to gain greater love for and satisfaction in jesus christ why do you do the things you do that's one of the questions that i ask myself will this enable me to love christ treasure him more cherish him more Or will it hinder me from cherishing Christ? Every decision that you will ever make is either a yes or no to that question. This will either bring me closer to Jesus or push me away. There are no neutral decisions. So how can you treasure Christ? In everything that you do, you do everything in reference to him. Do everything in reference to him. Every thought you can possibly have is a thought that is in reference to who Jesus is, what he has done, and that he is here with us. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The burden that I have is that somehow we have been caught up in that secular, sacred paradigm. We We go to church, we do our church thing, and then we just go to the world and do our world thing, and then we come back to church, do our church thing, go to the world. There is no dichotomy that splits those two for the believer the believer to live is christ for the believer to truly be living as a believer it is to live to treasure christ so everything that you do is ultimately done with the purpose of being able to treasure christ more take everything that you do and set it up on the backdrop of that statement I'm going to love my family so that I can treasure Christ more through loving them. I'm going to go to work so that I can treasure Christ more. I'm going to go to school so I can treasure Christ more. There are so many different ways that you can answer that question with that backdrop as your motivation for living, just as it is Paul's motivation for living. Another wrong concept that we have bought into is the concept that we live our life now and then we have eternal life in the future. Turn to John chapter 17. A lot of people flip this verse around, the Philippians 1, 21. A lot of people flip it around. A lot of believers flip it around functionally. They, they tangibly and practically, living is gain and dying is when I go to be with Christ. They kind of flip it around in a very practical outworking. Paul says living is Christ, dying is gain. But a lot of us tend to just live to gain, live to grab, live to hold on to. And then when we die, we know we'll be with Jesus. I think that's because we have a faulty view of eternal life, what eternal life is. Does it happen the moment that we die? Is that what eternal life is? Is that when it starts? John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. That you will live forever in heaven with God? That when you die, you will be with Jesus? No, this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing Jesus. So eternal life is therefore not just a quantity of life in reality, it's a quality of life. It's not for the future alone. It's for the present, for the here and now. So my question is, how are you living with your eternal life? I think one of the reasons why people don't like Christians or look down upon Christians or think, why should I believe in Christ, because we should be living as if we have eternal life, because we do have it, but we're not living that way. We look just like the world. We act just like the world. Our desires are the exact same desires of the world. I don't want us to separate Christ from Christianity. I don't want us to separate Christ from Christian living. What are you doing right now to treasure Christ? It's easy to come to church. It's easy to Go to camps, it's easy to go to conferences, it's easy to go to Bible studies and to think, man, that's a good idea, I should do that. And then we walk away without a strategic, purposeful, planned application of how we are going to change our lives in order to treasure Christ more. Brothers and sisters, I want to be able to say with Paul to live is Christ. Everything that I do is done in reference to him. He is my list. There is nothing else on my list. Only when we say that can we truly say what Paul says next. To die is gain. Go back to Philippians. Living is Christ. My life is consumed by Christ. And every decision that I make is made in relation to Christ. Oh, that that would be said of me. But then, Paul says, to die is gain. To die is gain. The issue is not just what is the purpose of life, but what happens after you die? And Paul uses this word, to die. It's not the process of dying. It speaks more to the event or specifically the result of the event of your death. And Paul says, to die would be great gain. To die would be gain. Why? This is where we're going to have to pick it up next week. The reason why. Death is great gain, is because you are able to treasure Christ more when you die and see him face to face than right now here on this earth. Paul says it's gain, it's hitting the jackpot. It's everything I've always wanted, never looked forward to. In fact, he looks forward to his death so much that he starts this debate, this argument within his own heart. He says in verse 22, If I am to live on the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, but I don't know which to choose, to die or to live. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ. I want to be with him. He says, I have the desire to depart. That's the word. It's actually, we could translate it, I lust to depart. We often have lust in our mind with a negative connotation, but lust in the Greek just means that you have a deep, strong desire for something And it's only negative if the thing that you're desiring is wrong. He wants to be with Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus because that is very much better. How how can we have a biblical grid that says losing everything? Put everything that you will ever amount to, um, acquire in this life on one side. We'll have a scale here. Put everything in this life on one side of the scale. What's most precious to you? What's most valuable to you? For some people, houses. For some people, family. That's going to be a big one. We're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving and thanking God for our families. And amen and amen. But when you die, you lose all these things, right? When you die, you're separated from all these things. For a moment, if your family are believers, for a moment. But Paul says it's better to lose everything on this side of the scale in death and gain one thing in the next life, Jesus Christ. You put Jesus on one side of the scale, you put everything that you will lose when you die on this side of the scale, and these things go flying off the side because Christ is so much weightier, so much more glorious than anything that this world has to offer. That's why Paul says, I'm living for him, and when I die, yes, I'm going to lose precious things in this world, but they're not going to matter anymore because it will be gain for me to see Jesus face to face. That's where we're going to pick it up next week as we look at Paul's motivation for living life and for seeing death with a biblical perspective. But until next week, can I, can I just speak from my heart? We're going to, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. Are you thankful for Jesus? There are so many things in this world that we have to be thankful for, and they are good things, and God has given to them to us as gifts. But can I plead with our hearts not to stare at the gifts alone, but let the gifts point us back to the giver of the gifts and to be blown away that he would even consider us? during our family Bible hour, we talked about the gospel. We just talked about the gospel. What I am most thankful for is that Jesus Christ would pity me and look upon me, though sinful, though wicked, though despising him, with no way to get out of my own sin and my own shame. He would say, I love you, to the point that I will take that penalty, I will bear the wrath of God in your place, on your behalf. I will live a perfect life and give that life to you through my death and resurrection. There is nothing more amazing than Jesus Christ. And we need to be thankful beyond thankful for him and him alone. And the more that we treasure him, the more that we will be able to sing the words we're about to sing with authenticity. The more that we treasure Christ above all things, the more that we will be able to say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, and he's all I want, and he's all I need. He's everything. Oh, that we'd be able to say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ. And to die would be gain because it would be getting more of Christ than I could possibly imagine. Father, I pray that you would clarify these thoughts in our own mind. I know it's so much to think through and to work through. And God, this is paradigm-shifting, paradigm-shattering doctrine. And God, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do to make these words a reality in our lives. God, we love you, but we know that we cannot say with genuine authenticity every second of every day that really living is jesus and jesus alone we want to we want to be able to say that and so i pray even as we sing that these songs would be prayers from our souls that we'd be crying out god make this true of my heart i want treasure you above anything in this world. God, I pray for any idols that might be popping up in our minds right now. God, please do that work of tearing them away, stripping every last desire away until only you remain. God, I praise you for the gospel that we are even able to come before you and treasure you. May we treasure you and cherish you even more as we sing. We pray in your name. Amen.